Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we'll be looking at the science of two very different types of money. One that's ancient, gold, and the other, which is brand spanking new, Bitcoin. Both have important environmental issues associated with their mining, and we will chat to two experts about how to mitigate these impacts. Coming up, we talk to a PhD student who is researching the energy use of Bitcoin mining, which is astonishingly large. But first up is a scientist who left academia to help improve the lives of subsistence gold miners by developing and promoting new technologies that are safer, more productive, and environmentally friendly than current methods. I'm joined down the line from British Columbia by the geochemist Kevin Telmer, who is executive director of the Artisanal Gold Council. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Very nice to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. Really looking forward to talking about um, artisanal gold mining. And, and that's something that you've studied for, for over 25 years. You, you started out in the Brazilian Amazon. What, what is artisanal gold mining and why has it captured your imagination? So the word artisanal is a little overplayed. It's uh, the longer uh, version is artisanal and small scale gold mining. That's an acronym created by the World Bank. Um, and uh, it is basically rudimentary gold mining that's practiced by unprofessional uh, subsistence miners. And you can think of it going back in time to the, uh, the gold rushes, California gold rush, Yukon gold rush, all of that would have been classified as artisanal and small scale gold mining. And it's basically a subsistence uh, economy. It's very large, much larger than most people imagine. It's uh, currently producing about 20 to 25% of the world's gold, fresh gold uh, production. And that's worth about 25 to $30 billion. It's, and it's occurring in, uh, in 80 different countries, eight zero. And, and is this something that, um, that, that still occurs in, in, in places like Canada and the U.S.? Or is it something that, that mostly occurs in, uh, let's say, South America or Africa? It's mostly in the developing world um, because it's a, uh, you know, it's a source of, uh, of important income and important livelihood um, for those uh, impoverished communities or rural communities that are transitioning out of the rural agrarian economies. Um, but it does still occur in, uh, in the U.S. and Canada, uh, mostly as a recreational uh, mining. That happens a lot. In fact, Walmart has a huge line of recreational sort of gold panning equipment. <laughs> wow. And there's estimates of, uh, you know, something like 45,000 people on a good sunny weekend in the U.S. go out and, you know, try to get some gold. And there still is a viable artisanal uh, mining community in Canada, particularly in the Yukon. The use of mercury in artisanal gold mining is an important environmental and worker safety issue. Why is mercury used in mining, and are there any safer, viable alternatives? There, uh, there are alternatives, but let me elaborate a little bit. The reason it's used is because it is relatively effective at getting what we call free gold. So those are gold grains that are fully liberated, like you would see in a gold pan in a river. 
it's not very good at getting uh, encapsulated gold. So gold that's still uh, int intrinsically in connection with um, the other minerals in a deposit like quartz vein. So um, for the free gold, though, uh, it's very cheap and it's very portable. So the portability is actually a huge factor. You can literally put this in a, uh, you know, in a baggie, in a plastic bag and put it in your pocket and head into the hills for a week. And there's not many other technologies, in a sense, that can, uh, that can compete with that kind of portability. And it's very simple. It's easy to use. Miners understand how to use it very quickly. So that's why it's used and, it, you know, how it's used. It's applied to um, a pan of concentrate. So you've been panning in a river and you've gotten rid of most of the light minerals and you're left with a concentrate of heavy minerals. We call them black sand sometimes. And that's where most of the gold will occur. So you can imagine you've kind of run a bunch of material through your system and you've gone from, let's say, one ton of material down to uh, maybe 20 kilograms and you've panned that down to five kilograms. But there's only five grams of gold in there. So how do you get that last concentration step? You add mercury and it amalgamates the gold. So it forms a chemical bond uh, with the gold. They're both very heavy. It sinks to the bottom of the pan and you're, you're done. In 15 minutes, you produce this ball of amalgam. And then you can liberate the gold simply by heating it, which is where the real dangers come in. But uh, so it's so simple um, that it's very attractive for this kind of rudimentary uh, approach to, um, uh, you know, simple gold mining. In terms of alternatives, there are very good ones. The best one out there that the whole gold mining industry uses, uh, most people will react to this next um, word, is cyanide. Oh <laughs> okay, so cyanide, <laughs> it has a very strong affinity to form a complex with gold. And that's why it's used by, uh, you know, most of the professional mining industry right now. Um, there are lots of, but there's a lot of research trying to replace cyanide because it has both a kind of a, I'll call it a headline risk. You know, it's a name that people react to. And it is an, also a, a, a difficult, uh, you know, uh, chemical to manage. But nonetheless, cyanide is used um, and it can get... Uh, it can get about 90% or 95% of the gold out of most types of deposits. And often mercury is only getting 40%. So just in terms of, uh, of recovery, there are things that can very strongly uh, outcompete mercury. But of course, to use those other systems um, requires, uh, you know, more know-how and more capital and more, you know, education and training and equipment and so all, there's a balancing act at work there. We are working very hard on uh, on trying to uh, create a technology that competes directly with the mercury in the baggie in your pocket, because that's the one use, this very rudimentary use, and that's perhaps 30% of the artisanal mining community globally. That one's very difficult to replace. So what we're working on actually is something called coal oil agglomeration. Now, what that really is, is it's a little particle of carbon that's encapsulated in an oil, and that creates a, a non-aqueous phase. And you mix this non-aqueous phase, but they're agglomerates, they're little balls, so you can separate them physically at some point in time, creates a non-aqueous phase. And gold is, um, it's kind of hydrophobic. So if you give gold the opportunity of existing in an aqueous phase, like river water, or this non-aqueous phase, it'll partition into the non-aqueous phase. 
Then you separate that out and you've got oil and carbon and you can literally just uh, burn that off and you're left with the gold. And we've gotten excellent results with uh, with this so far. It's a matter now of kind of how do we, you know, deliver that uh, out into the, uh, you know, into the hills, into the into the field. And we've got a kind of a call it a sushi restaurant packaging idea to do so. But let me back up and just say replacing mercury in that environment, um, in that very rudimentary context, does remain a huge challenge, a very difficult one. And Kevin, we were chatting before I, I hit record about um, the use of palladium isotopes uh, in terms of, of tracing gold. How, how does that work? So palladium isotopes, uh, this is just a, you know, it's an artisanal gold council or even a, just a Kevin Telmer sort of uh, approach to tracing gold. And it's quite sophisticated. So uh, that's why it's certainly not uh, used. Um, and we were trying to kind of to commercialize this. But um, I did a lot of isotope geochemistry in the past. So I have a nice insight into how isotope systematics work. And once upon a time, when you're learning about isotopes, stable and radiogenic, um, you're, you're introduced essentially to all the different uh, isotopes and stable isotopes. There are many for the heavier elements. Palladium has, I'm actually, I think it's about eight stable isotopes. So what you can do is uh, you can artificially alter the natural uh, signature of palladium isotopes, the, the natural distribution of palladium isotopes by running them essentially through a a magnetic field, you know, um, and uh, these these are commercially available um, isotope products, and that produces this, uh, you know, a unique fingerprint in a sense. And you can put that into a piece of gold. In fact, you can put it into a piece of gold uh, without altering the the purity of the gold. So if you had a a twenty four carat gold bullion bar, twenty four carats means that it's about 99.99% pure. That means you have all the other nines to go, right? The uh, 0.009999, that's where you can hide an addition of palladium. And palladium is a naturally occurring impurity in gold in the first place. So there's no harm done in a sense by altering its uh, isotopic composition or by adding a tiny bit of palladium. So you can create a fingerprint that is intrinsic to the bar of gold. And that doesn't exist right now. Most of the traceability technology has to do with, you know, literally paper or serial numbers or, you know, people love to talk about the blockchain. And, but it's all whatever is input to the database is recorded. There's not still a, a way of finding a gold bar. And then having an intrinsic tag or tracer um, in it that you could um, you could analyze and say, oh, voila, this bar came from, you know, this lot or this batch. So that's kind of an exciting, uh, you know, thing that I I uh, get to, um, you know, innovate these kind of approaches um, with my you know sort of geo geochemical background. Um, maybe that excites some of your uh, your listeners, your um, your the community of physicists. If there was a, something I would like to, uh, you know, have come out of this uh, this interview, I would say it's it is to um, highlight that there are all kinds of neat science uh, sort of applications uh, possible, and uh, you know, the more physicists, the better. And, and how would it how would it work? Would you would you would you be able to, um, to 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 take a sample of gold and and 
work out the palladium isotope ratios without having to d d destroy it in any way? Uh, or, or would you have to take a small sample? How, how would the measurement work? You would likely, it would be a destructive uh, analysis, but it would be such a tiny little um, sample that it would be almost imperceptible. You could even use laser ablation to do this. So, um, you know, certainly smaller than it detectable um, by the human eye. Um, there's, you know, not all the kinks are worked out. For example, are these isotopes distributed homogeneously throughout a gold bar? Um, but that those are solvable. Those are uh, very solvable problems. Uh, but that's how it would work. You'd have to have some kind of a, a mass spectrometer um, for detection. So one way you could look at it is it's very um, it's very easy to mark. It's very easy to um, you know to uh, to label uh, a batch of gold um, and expensive to um, to analyze or sample. So you know that works a little bit like tickets on the metro or something where. You know, you don't have to sample every person or every gold bar in this case. You would just take a, a sample every now and then. That might make it affordable and manageable. I see. And and when we were speaking earlier, you also mentioned uh, another physics-related phenomenon that's uh, associated with gold production, and that's leaching. Right. Here's a. I'll try to visually give you a visual picture of why leaching is required or why it's a superior technology to say. Um, physical separation. So gold's very heavy. There's lots of centrifuges and there are a lot of physical separation technologies to separate gold from other materials. But there are also very, very fine, uh, you know, intricate um, interlaced bits of gold in, in minerals and other materials that is at such a small scale that you essentially need to dissolve them out of that uh, complex matrix. And in that sense, all you need is some, if there's a surface opening and then a, a, a crack that, uh, that you know, uh, uh, penetrates the object at depth, you can, you can leach that gold out of that, uh, that object. And, and so that is how you get the most gold uh, out of a, um, you know, uh, again, whatever you're trying to get the gold out of. And sometimes this is uh, recycled materials, so electronics, circuit boards, you know, et cetera, leaching. Uh, a leach is very important technology for extracting all the precious metals out of those waste materials as well. As I mentioned earlier, cyanide is, uh, in a sense, the uh, you know the the chemical of choice for doing that. But it has a lot of challenges. It has regulatory challenges. It is very toxic. Um, nicely, it is biodegradable, right? It's not uh, like mercury. It's not an element that doesn't persist. So it's a non-persistent uh, toxin in a sense. But it's very difficult to um, to do properly and manage, and there are safety risks. So there is a lot of um, investigation into alternative leaching methods. And two that I could mention to you, so uh, you need an interesting complex to, uh, to, uh, to, you know, to form a complex with gold. So there are things like amino acids, that's a, an active line of research. And there are other uh, very much more physics-oriented um, techniques like eutectic liquids. Um, that uh, have great promise. In fact, they're more than just great promise. They're, they're uh, proven, um, excellent um, technologies. The problem now is, is uh, scaling them up or, or commercializing them or having them work beyond just the lab scale. 
And uh, that kind of probably goes more into the engineering side of things. Most of that work, a lot of that, in particular, the eutectic liquids work is coming out of physics shops. And 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 what is a eutectic liquid? It sounds familiar to me. I've probably written about it, but completely forgotten what it is. <laughs> a eutectic liquid you would have uh, probably encountered if you're looking at um, uh, cooling or melting of magmas. So you've got a liquid that uh, you've got diff- you've got a liquid in a solid phase and different minerals different components of both the liquid and the solid will solidify or melt at different pressures and temperatures so without using a graph or some visual representation here the simple way to think of it is by manipulating the pressure and temperature you can uh, you can cause certain parts of the solid to melt without other parts melting or to crystallize one way or the other. And in fact, you can do that in the, at room temperature and, you know, sort of ambient pressures for uh, dissolving gold out of a complex matrix. I see. And and Kevin, you mentioned mobile phones. And, and, and you know, I think uh, there are a lot of really valuable um, elements in mobile phones, not just gold, um, you know, rare earths, for example. Is, is there a, are rare earths mined in an artisanal way? Rare earths are mined in an artisanal way, uh, particularly, uh, well, cobalt is the big one that people talk about, most of it coming out of the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is mined, I think 70% of it is mined um, artisanally. And rare earths, uh, there's a lot, but nonetheless, um, there are alluvial deposits of rare earth elements. So you have heavy minerals um, that have a high rare earth uh, composition, particularly in Indonesia, uh, West Kalimantan, um, that uh, so there are viable uh, and ac- active um, artisanal mining of rare earth elements, and I would say that um, those you know those sites and those uh, uh, those communities of artisanal miners they have all of the same issues and barriers and challenges uh, as artisanal gold miners uh, minus minus the mercury element, or not, uh, no pun intended there, minus the, the mercury factor, um, because uh, they don't need mercury to, to, uh, to capture those rare earth elements. But in some cases, there are a mix. Of, there's even gold that's included in, um, in those rare earth element uh, uh, deposits. So you, you even have mercury involved in some cases. So, Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the day-to-day activities of the Artisanal Gold Council? Right. Um, so let me first uh, start off by saying that, you know, it's a not-for-profit organization, um, but we're a little bit different. We do interact with the profitable world, the private sector world, very strongly because that's important for our mission. And then let me tell you what the mission is. Um, it is to improve artisanal gold mining writ large. But more specifically, what we want to see happen is to have artisanal gold mining assume its rightful place as a viable actor in the global mining sector. I mean, it's huge. It's 20% of global gold, et cetera. And we see that happening through the professionalization of artisanal gold mining. Mining is a complicated endeavor. It's very technical. Meeting uh, reasonable regulatory requirements is a technical endeavor. And it requires professionals to do that. So a lot of what the Artisanal Gold Council does is create, uh, well, we do a lot of training and education. And our 
our projects train groups of miners to essentially become professionals and then to operate a professionally run viable gold mining business. Now we do want to, uh, you know, we we try hard to uh, to continue to preserve what we would call the artisanal component of this, which is, you know, it's sort of people's mining. There's a lot of people involved, and actually, that's quite a viable uh, approach. Anyway, that's uh, that's what we do in general, and then uh, the day to day things. Well, you know, it's like any uh, many other um, institutions, like a university. We have our programs, we have program managers, we have researchers, we have our sort of experts, our technical experts, and they're all busy running our projects and, you know, trying to influence the world's thinking on this really uh, important topic. And, and you began your career as a, a geochemist at, at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. C- c- can you give uh, any listeners some advice about, um, you know, how to get involved in, a, in, in an NGO if, if you're an academic researcher? Right. You know, that's a great question because um, I think my trajectory is a bit of a rare one. So just to uh, give your readers a, a you know, important uh, background, I was a tenured professor and I chose to jump and leave my permanent job, lifetime earnings, et cetera, uh, to pursue artisanal gold mining. I'd been most of my research program at UVic was uh, about uh, artisanal gold mining one way or another. So uh, it wasn't that hard. But I would uh, I would encourage uh, many academics um, who are in a sense, well, you know, chomping at the bit to do something more practical and, uh, you know, something they can really point to and say this is helping the world to try doing that. It is, you know, you might need to have the right conditions to take that kind of a risk. One of our mottos is really, you know, you learn through doing and um, without doing it, you'll never really learn what it is, what's required to do it or how to do it, etc. So I think uh, that's one way to get involved is whatever you're interested in, you know, just don't don't be too, um, I guess, uh, enslaved to your current career trajectory. Um, But in terms of just getting involved with an NGO like ours as an academic, I think there's uh, just reaching out and and seeing if there's a research role, because there is a lot of research. But you do need to recognize or understand that NGOs are not universities and time is precious. And everyone, you know, there's a we we do uh, have a budget and we have to, you know, we try very hard to uh, to offer kind of competitive career salaries, et cetera. So in coming to work with an NGO, you have to think hard about how can you support the organization, not just your own sort of narrow research um, objectives. Uh, so don't view the NGO as a, you know, a foothold as much as a, um, a door opener for your own participation in the mission of the NGO. That's probably my the salient uh, advice there would be look at the mission and see if you align with it and then engage. Well, that's some, some great advice, Kevin. Thanks. And, and, and thank you very much for being on the Physics World Weekly Podcast. My pleasure, Hamish. It's, uh, it's always great to interact with the academic world. And yeah, I was excited to come on and, uh, and do this interview. Thank you very much. The cryptocurrency Bitcoin uses blockchain technology to ensure the legitimacy of transactions. This requires vast computational resources, which are provided by third-party miners who are rewarded in Bitcoin for their efforts. 
Susanna Kuller is a PhD student at Alberg University in Denmark, where she studies blockchain systems. In this conversation with Physics World's James Dacey, she explains how blockchain technologies work and their impacts on society and the environment, both good and bad. I know blockchain is described as a distributed ledger technology uh, that can create trustworthy systems. I mean, how would you um, describe blockchain to the uninitiated? Yeah, I I would, uh, in simple terms, describe it as, as a distributed ledger, as you said, that publicly records transactions. Um, and there is no need for a central authority anymore. So, for example, with Bitcoin, you don't need the bank, which is the central authority uh, for normal trans uh, financial services. Um, and the way it's set up, the blockchain is virtually immutable. So you cannot go back and change it because the uh, it's basically an add-only uh, ledger. So new information is added at the end, and this information is cryptographically linked. So if you would uh, change something, it would be noticed. Um, so it's very expensive. You would have to basically control more, most of the network to uh, to manipulate it, and therefore um, the transparency because it's public and the trust is supposed to increase. As you say, I mean, perhaps the most well-known usage of blockchain is in, in cryptocurrencies, you know, like, like Bitcoin. And, you know, in, in, in that process, um, you have miners that solve these cryptographic puzzles, which then creates new Bitcoins, which are then traded. You know, so, so looking at these puzzles, I, I, I understand the idea is that, that they're gradually getting more and more complicated. Um, you know, I think physicists like to get their heads around the, the idea of orders of magnitude. And, and so, you know, the, the types of puzzle that are involved now, um, how much more complicated are they compared with um, at the beginning? Um, well, let me just describe maybe the kind of puzzle we're talking about. Um, so because you have these blocks that are linked, um, every, every block includes, you're hashing the information that's included in the block. So you're running this hashing algorithm that that basically transfers the information contained in the block to a fixed number, a fixed length number, that is the hash. Um, and this hash needs to fulfill certain criteria. Um, and all you can do to fulfill these criteria is guess the hash. So what mm -hmm. you're doing is you're changing one little information inside the block, which will then spit out a completely different hash than uh, if you added a, a space. Um, so virtually this is a uh, trial and error process of fitting these criteria. And these criteria, they're uh, re dependent on the difficulty of this, of this Bitcoin mining network. The difficulty of the uh, Bitcoin mining network depends on how many guesses, how many hashes are guessed per second. So if when there are more people join or more uh, hashes guessed, it becomes more difficult because the um, the block generation time is supposed to stay around 10 minutes. Um, so in order to ensure, uh, ensure that only about every 10 minutes a block is mined, it just becomes more difficult. Um, and maybe to give you an idea of 
um, the the size of the Bitcoin mining network and the the changes in difficulty. So when I started uh, with my PhD in the in the beginning of 2018, there were about 15 um, million tera hashes per second every day. Um, and in the beginning of 2021, this is about 150 million tera hashes per second. Wow. <laughs> so, so we're talking about truly astronomical um, sizes then. <laughs> so, it, so it sounds like the way of actually uh, mining, yeah, it's basically brute force then. It's, it's, it's kind of guessing exactly. systems and that, and that generates, um, or, that, or that requires uh, huge amounts of energy. Uh, so, so I've seen different estimates recently, but I see it, but they seem to range between is it 80 and 120 terawatt hours per year, which is about the same, I think, as, as what Norway <laughs> consumes in a year. So it's, we're talking about huge amounts of energy. Will, will that cap out at some point or will it just keep growing and growing indefinitely? Um, to be honest, I don't see an end to it. <laughs> But mm -hmm. I also I also think it's extremely difficult to make any kind of predictions about the future of Bitcoin because there are so many uh, unforeseeable factors. If you ask someone a few months ago how it will develop, most of the answers will be wrong. So mm -hmm. you cannot even predict short term. How will you try to make predictions long term? I think instead what we need to better understand is um, how the market price and the incentives for miners um, yeah, inf influence the energy cons consumed and ultimately the carbon footprint. Okay, and, and in terms of the computers that are used for this task, I mean, I know some scientists listening to this might be familiar with using supercomputers in, in science projects. So are, are we talking about the same types of technology there? And, and also I know there are some concerns around the computing rigs because they, you know, this is moving so quickly that they have a limited shelf life. So are we, are we also potentially storing up a problem with electronic waste? There, there have been estimates that the lifetime of a Bitcoin miner is around 1.5 years. Um, although it's, it's unsure from the scientific side how long the lifetime really is. There's been also some publications that suggest that um, during times of extreme market price spikes, there are incentives to buy older machines again or to reuse machines that were um, previously deemed unprofitable because they are less uh, efficient. Um, so I think it's difficult to, to say how what the actual generation waste generation is mm -hmm. um but i think we we will likely also run into true problems with that respect um these these specific mining rigs they need uh, semiconductors as a lot of technologies and if you if you need to buy tons of more um equipment to stay competitive or to grow with the market you're putting pressure on these semiconductors that are used for um, computers or batteries. So I think there is some kind of competition with other markets as well. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, so do you mean potentially uh, sustainable renewable energies um, might be competing for the same components? For for one of the components because mm -hmm. of the batteries uh, that you 
need for storage. I, mean, I suppose on the other side of that is, you know, is it possible that this could provide an incentive to um, develop the technologies which can then be used in, in science, you know, for climate modelling and that type of thing? Yeah, and and I think this is this is one component what uh, that makes it also difficult to project future energy consumption and impacts because we don't know what the availability of these components are for future use and if they can scale to the same, then uh, Bitcoin mining would scale. Bitcoin mining and the Bitcoin blockchain, as well as uh, a number of other cryptocurrencies, use this proof of work mechanism uh, algorithm to uh, secure their blockchain and to verify transactions. This is the main cause uh, of the electricity consumption and environmental impacts that are mentioned in the media and that uh, uh, our research and other research focuses on. However, this is basically the first iteration of, of a consensus mechanism used for a blockchain. So there are developments such as uh, proof of stake, which some uh, blockchains like Ethereum are moving to, that will virtually decrease the the impact that we calculated to zero. That doesn't mean there is zero impact, but our research was really, research was really on Bitcoin mining, um, and there are numbers estimating that the reduction would be 99% of the uh, energy consumption. So I think it's important to highlight that blockchain does not mean proof of work and the related environmental impacts. It could also be a different uh, consensus mechanism that does not require this amount of electricity. And we may see more in innovation in this space. I know the advocates of um, blockchain speak about, um, and you mentioned earlier as well, this idea of creating trustworthy chains so, so one example i've seen is with a second-hand car um, at the moment we're kind of relying on intermediaries to provide information um, whereas with a blockchain you, you'd be able to see the history in terms of the mileage and the works done on the car the same goes for if you're buying a house for example um, so you're involved in the uh, sustainable blockchain technologies project so you're looking at the wider uh, impacts of blockchain on on society and environment. Can you tell me about that project and you know and some of the other positive applications that that could come out of blockchain? Yeah, sure. So when the project um, yeah was developed or the idea was developed, this was in the time where you know there were these news articles popping up about how bad Bitcoin is and that it's on track to use all of the world's energy or all these kinds of yeah, statements that were made in the media. But at the same time, there were all these arc uh, articles focusing on how good blockchain is and that blockchain will save the world. And, you know, there are um, financial um, applications, financial services that can transform the industry. Um, yeah, there are applications to monitor greenhouse gas inventories or use them for carbon credit tracking. Um, there are applications and supply chain traceability. So was all this talk about blockchain is the solution for everything. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, from this premise, our research sets out to investigate and anticipate the environmental and social effects of blockchain beyond the hype and with a solid scientific basis. And our project can be split into two parts. So one part is um, what we basically just talked about. What is the quantitative environmental impact of 
um, in our case, these proof of work blockchain technologies from a lifecycle perspective and uh, based yeah, on the example of Bitcoin. And the second part uh, where we look more at the applications and because there are so many applications, we specifically look at um, yeah, supply chain applications um, where we want to know in what specific ways blockchain-based technologies foster sustainable development yeah, with the example of supply chains. Okay, so, so what, I, mean, I saw one um, example on, on the project sites, which um, was looking at agricultural workers in Africa trying to buy seeds and, and blockchain could in some way come in to, to basically ensure that the seeds that people are buying are genuine, they're not counterfeit. Um, so I'm just trying to get my head around what that might look like for somebody in sub-Saharan Africa what sort of platform, what, what interface are they, you know, interacting with and how could that work in a sort of practical, realistic way? Um, so the idea is that with blockchain technology, you can, um, as in financial applications, you cannot double spend money in the case of financial applications. So I cannot send you $10 and send $10 to a different, the same $10 to a different person. It's not possible because the algorithm algorithm tracks it. Um, and it's verified that you, I can only use this once. The same basically uh, works with other um, yeah, token or tokenized uh, things besides money. So I could, uh, for a supply chain, they could initiate uh, an amount of, of seeds um, they can say there are, I don't know, 10 kilograms of these seeds. And then when they sell them further down the line and it's tracked on the blockchain, you cannot make uh, 100 kilograms out of 10 kilograms because there is no certificate for this. There is mm -hmm. no, no proof of 100 kilograms existing. Um, and then that's one of, I think, one of the main issues to attach this virtual token of something to the reality to the real product um in the case of these seeds they were actually saying that uh they do spot um genetic tests of the seeds because they were uh there were certain certain kinds of seeds where you can see it if it's this kind of seed or some cheap uh, mm -hmm. replicate so, um, so, so how would that, you know, in terms of the end user, the person buying the seeds, would it, uh, you know, would it be an application on a mobile phone or what, you know, how would they interact with, with the blockchain? Yeah, so they could um, scan a QR code or an NFT uh, tag, depending on, on what the system is set up uh, to. And then you can see certain criteria that are shared with this tag. Mm-hmm. So that for the end user, they would not interact with a code on a blockchain. So there is some way to make this, um, yeah, easier consumable for the target audience. Okay, yeah, and and at the moment, are these ideas are they hypothetical, or you know, are we starting to see any platforms emerge? We are definitely starting to see platforms emerge, um, but at the same time, this is a space that changes uh, constantly. So I would say that these. Uh, many of these projects, they are uh, experimenting also with the technology to see what's possible. Um, so, for example, there is a use case where um, they track 
coffee along a uh, supply chain from um, Eastern Africa to, to Europe. Um, and then because it's all on the blockchain as a consumer, when you scan the QR code, they were testing different things. Um, can You could tip the farmer, one idea. You could also, um, yeah, mic make microloan schemes where the consumers or other actors in the supply chain can uh, give microloans to the farmer who wants to um, plant a tree from this. So they are playing around with ideas and what will stick at the end, I think that's to be determined. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and in your research, I think you do, you, do you interview people that are involved in this supply chain? Are, are you trying to um, ascertain their their hopes and their, and their fears about this kind of technology? Yeah, so we were talking to people that were working with projects that had been implemented to uh, different degrees or for a different uh, length of time. Um, and the idea was to identify how these kind of uh, implementations create positive impact. Because you have a lot of um, research previously stating what are the potentials and what can maybe happen, but we want to look at the how. Um, and what we've done is that we, um, arising from this, emerging from this interview data, we um, came up with with a kind of scheme and uh, that describes how the the impact is created and also identified four different um, yeah pathways to impact. One of the things that blockchain um, advocates spoke about in, in the first place was the fact that this is very decentralized. Uh, but do, do you think we're at the point now where we are going to see big technology companies come into this space? You know, the, the analogy is sometimes made, isn't it, is that it's blockchain is a bit like the World Wide Web in the 90s, um, whereas eventually we saw Facebook and Google really kind of dominate in, in that field and other companies. And do you think that might be the same with blockchain? You know, eventually things might gather around certain big companies. And also, do you think it might become uh, more and more regulated by governments? Um, I think that there's a certain possibility that you will have a few big companies dominating the space. I mean, you see it already now that you have um, big companies like IB, IBM working together with Walmart and some other companies, and they have their own system that they sell. So you have big companies doing this, but you also have a number of small companies. Um, and I mean, it doesn't need to be that the big companies develop something that's not decentral. So I, th I, th I think in the end, uh, it depends on how the whole the space develops and it's difficult to to predict. I think there is a, a chance that it happens. Um, and I think it's important to know that not every blockchain is the same and not every blockchain may guarantee uh, transparency because it's set up in a way that it's not publicly accessible, the information or the information captured is, is not as relevant. So I think it's very much dependent on on the design of the whole network and what the what uh, the the blockchain-based technologies aim to to achieve. The, the things we hear about uh, blockchain are linked with quite revolutionary thinking. You know, and there's lots of wild claims about it, which I think you know you mentioned. That the debate so far seems to be quite black and white, isn't it? It's quite kind of unnuanced, and it's it's either going to change the world 
forever or it's going to destroy the world. And um, at the moment, do you think governments are kind of sort of standing off and seeing how things develop before they maybe step in further and um, try to regulate more? Or, or is there something built into these technologies which means that it, it will always be able to, to evade being completely regulated by governments? Um. I think there are the governments governments are concerned with blockchains and they are considering taking um yeah designing regulations for blockchains and for different applications of blockchains. It's just that it's a slower process than in a than innovation and technology uh yeah take up. Mm-hmm. Um but I do and I do think that blockchain can also be regulated, maybe not in the same way than other technologies can um because with the example of of blockchain of bitcoin you it may be really really difficult to change the blockchain protocol and to regulate that but you could regulate um the wallets and the the market spaces there are some places where it's maybe easier to do but yeah, maybe the thinking for regulating decentralized technologies will also change to what it was before, what it is right now. Um, but I, I do believe that there will be regulation and there will be um, governments are thinking about how to address this. And in certain spaces, it's also good for, for the companies to know what the regulations will be and how to, to work with them. It's a mm-hmm. kind of certainty that can be provided. Obviously, as we say, it's not black or white, but would you say overall you're, you're optimistic that blockchain will have an overall um, positive impact on, on societies? Big question, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the big questions, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm optimistic that there are certain use cases that, that will be very useful for a lot of people and that can be overall sustainable and foster sustainability. Okay, it's good to hear. (laughs) Okay, thanks, Susan. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Zuzanna Culler, Kevin Telmer, and James Dacey for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, please check out the Physics World website for the latest news and long-form articles. New this week is a feature article called Celebrating a Century of Nuclear Isomers, in which Philip Walker and Jolt Podolyak pick five examples of these long-lived, excited nuclear states and explain why they're so important in medical physics and beyond. Physics World.